And I said, you know what? I'm going to just pull the damn plug on this, even though it's going to be very painful because it's a really easy money, you know, to get a whole bunch of friends of yours to mail your stuff all the time and mm-hmm. share the money with them. But I said, screw it. I'm going to get good at turning advertising into profit because I think that really is the only long-term solution. You hear all the bull about marketing every day. Make your money in your sleep. My new offer is crushing it. My guru could beat up your guru. It's time to go right to the source and get the truth about marketing. With your host, the founder of CopyChief.com, Kevin Rogers. Hey, welcome back to The Truth About Marketing. It's Kevin Rogers here. My guest today is Frank Kern, a man who really does need no introduction in this business, but I'll give him one anyway. Uh, He is one of the most well-known, well-respected, and uh, 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 financially well-endowed marketers walking this blue marble. Uh, The man works hard for his money. He started his direct response uh, journey back in 1999, well-respected copywriter. He's a relentless tester and I think a masterful reinventor of his own personal brand and his suite of products. Perhaps best known for his uh, his breakthrough course called Mass Control. Uh, but Frank is always out there, always promoting cool stuff and uh, you know, a very open teacher of all this great knowledge that he's accrued over the years. So Frank, uh, really appreciate you making time and wrapping with us today. Thanks, man. That sounded really cool. Keep just keep saying that stuff, and I'll nod. Just put that on a loop. It could be your ringer, your ring. Yeah, I can stand behind you, like Flavor Flav, and just be like, "Yeah," like that. I think, and then that could be become my contribution. That would be cool. I like that. Um, So, Macon, Georgia. Yeah, born in Macon, Georgia. Born in Macon, Georgia, and moved to Marathon, Florida, for a little while. My mother and father divorced. She went down there and married a boat mechanic, and then came back to Macon, Georgia uh, when I was a little bit older. So pretty much Macon, Georgia, mm. you know. It, you know, something in the water there, dude. I've been to Macon, um, but, you know, Little Richard, the Almond Brothers, Otis Redding. Yeah. Uh, we claim James Brown, too. I mean, technically he's Augusta, but we're claiming him. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, you can't – that's like this – that's not normal. And then Frank Kern, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're definitely cooler than most Georgia guys. And not, not putting Georgia down, but I know a lot of cats from Georgia. They don't usually become surfers and wear that uh, so well, right? <laughs> it's, it's hard to do down there considering the absence of waves. You know? <laughs> they have a significant disadvantage, so yeah. I, I think we should cut them some slack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fair enough. I mean, you know, well, you know, uh, Cocoa Beach isn't that far away, or uh, uh, Saint Augustine. But uh, what, um, what, and you, know, what are your vivid memories growing up there in uh, in Macon? What, what, what do you recall? Man, I remember working, dude. It was, um, I, I had a real good time coming up, really. But I, I lived uh, with my mother and stepfather. I have no brothers or sisters. I'm the fourth. Frank Kern. We were all only children. Mm. Um, and my mother is uh, is and was just as weird as they come. And she would not shy away from that description. So this is by no means disrespectful to her. Um, and she is and was involved in what some would refer to as a cult. I don't think it's really a cult, but it's this thing called Siddha Yoga, 
which is an Eastern Indian quasi-religious, well, I mean, it's definitely spiritual, but I don't think they call themselves a church or anything. But, you know, she's got an actual guru and stuff. So I grew up mm. in Macon, Georgia, you know, no brothers and sisters. I, I wasn't particularly popular as a kid. <laughs> and every Wednesday, my mother would have all of these middle-aged white people come over to our house and they would put red dots on their head and they would uh, chant Sanskrit, ancient Sanskrit songs and play these Eastern Indian instruments and stuff and uh, meditate. So that really helped me uh, become even less popular, really, <laughs> in my neighborhood <laughs> with people. So I remember kind of having to fend for myself a lot, you know. Um, yeah. I've spent a lot of time in the woods and I spent a lot of time with my dog. Um, but it was fun. I had a good time, man. So, you know, I remember being in the woods, being hot, and listening to very strange sounds coming from upstairs every Wednesday. Wow. And do you look back on uh, your life as a young man and see any entrepreneurial spark? Yeah, definitely. hundred percent. Um, I had to start working when I was in fifth grade, um, not through any financial hardship or anything, but my parents had a boat marina. So after school, my job was to pump gas there and to run the concession stand. So that started when I, I was whatever age fifth grade is. And then I had to always had jobs from there. So as soon as I was old enough to actually get a non-family job, I started bagging groceries. And then I was a desk clerk at a hotel. And this is during high school. So I'd go to high school till three. And then i go be the desk clerk at the Best Western Regency Inn. Uh, in Macon, Georgia, right off Eisenhower Parkway. Mm. Come on down and see us. And I worked there till 1130, and I hated having a job. So I always wanted to actually work for myself. And um, and my grandfather, who was really my, my primary father figure, my father was extremely cool, but also was uh, a, a real bad alcoholic, a friendly, fun type of alcoholic, yeah. but wasn't really particularly – Good in the traditional sense of parenting, mm. but the non-traditional sense, he was awesome. So I learned a lot from my grandfather, who was a self-made uh, multimillionaire. And so he became, by the time I was old enough to be slightly more sober, uh, like maybe 19 or so, he became uh, my mentor. Uh, like officially, I asked him to. I was like, would you please teach me how to not be – the pizza guy anymore, mm. <laughs> you know, because I, had, right. I failed out of college and was, you know, it's your typical story of abject failure after failure, you know, kicked out of school and bad grades, black sheep of the family, and drug habit, and roofer and house painter, and, you know, just constantly trying all these dead end things and very irresponsible. And um, I asked him, I mean, just point blank. I'm just like, will you please help me basically get my shit together? And uh, he was like, yeah, I will. And um, his his doing that was to essentially become like a Marine Corps drill sergeant and kick my ass all the time. Mm. But it worked pretty good. Wow, that's that's great. You know, do you think that is like the the factor? Uh, just that want to, right? I had the, I had the same moment with my uncle, and it, it, I always laugh because he could he was sure I was coming to him for money. Right. <laughs> and all, and he was a similar successful businessman in the family. And I uh, asked for a meeting with him and, you know, we sat down and he quickly launched into how he w wasn't about to hand me a check, you know, <laughs> and it's not at all what I wanted. I just wanted to know the secret to success, kind of like 
uh, you asked your grandfather. And so now I'm sure so many people have come to you over the years saying, Frank, you know, you got to help me. What's the thing? I can't seem to get there. Is that it, man? Like, if you could name one thing, is it like you just got to really want to? You got to go out of your own way to 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 find who might know the answer to this riddle and and ask it. I I agree with that, and um, I, I would tell them exactly what he told me, which is you got to want to, and you got to quit bullshitting yourself mm. because everything's a choice. You know, it's funny. I was having this conversation with my friend and client Brooke Castillo. She was over here. Um, Two days ago, as a matter of fact, it was a really good visit. She went from three hundred grand and two years ago, and now she's at three million. So I'm real proud of her. Right. And um, we were talking about that, like what keeps people from actually doing this stuff. And uh, I believe it's because they don't really want it, and they bullshit themselves with these excuses, such as, "Well, it's too hard," or "I don't have time." And in reality, you definitely have time. You are making a conscious decision to spend the time elsewhere. And you might even have a perfectly rational reason why you should spend the time elsewhere. Like, well, my kid's got a baseball game. I can't miss the baseball game. Well, maybe, but in reality, what you're doing is you're putting that baseball game over. the. You're placing that at a higher priority to getting the job done. And that's neither right nor wrong, but it is what it is. And when you get very crystal clear about that and just stop accepting lies from your brain and start using that accurate thinking principle, which is, do I really not have time? Is this really overwhelming or can I just go on YouTube and look up a tutorial on how to do this? You know, then things become very not easier, but at least, you know, the truth about the situation, you know, so I I 100 percent agree with you. I think when people say they want it, they're they're playing a lot of lip service, you know, it's kind of like Ronnie Coleman says, you know, everybody won't be a bodybuilder, but don't nobody want to lift these heavy ass weights. (laughs) (laughs) that's the truth that's great i love it um all right so here i got a quick fan question if you don't mind um uh are you a chicken and shrimp lover yes i am a chicken and shrimp lover by god especially when i'm in celebration florida (laughs) nice all right that was easy um all right so this will be fun i'm gonna name three attributes uh and you tell me the one that if they're taken away, Frank Kern has a very different life, right? Wow, okay. Yeah, I usually don't ask questions like this, but I thought this was fun. Uh, Here they are, three attributes. Um, Empathy, showmanship, and salesmanship. So um, am I supposed to pick one that would have the most devastating effect if I lost it? Yeah, yeah. Jeez, man. Gosh, that is tough. I, you know, I'm on the spot, and I, I guess I, I'd like to reserve the right to, to uh, what's the word, um, not resolve the answer, but uh, whatever, change the answer later yeah, if necessary. Yeah, okay, fair enough. But at, at this phase, I think I would have to say salesmanship. Mm. And the reason I'm having a hard time with that is because I think empathy is tied to salesmanship. Yeah, so I can't. Sure. I don't think you can really do it without empathy, but you know, from a practical level, I would have to say – salesmanship because sometimes you don't have to have empathy if a dude wants a horse and you can say here's a horse and here's why the horse is really good you're doing pretty good you don't necessarily have to have empathy you know you have to have empathy when you need to get someone to turn the corner so to speak so yeah good um, point yeah but i would hate to lose all of those i think showmanship is the least important for me Hmm. personally i'm pretty boring now you know i used to do all that kind of stuff but now i don't really mess with it when you look back on 
thanks for answering that. I know that wasn't a really <laughs> easy question, but that's a really important and interesting distinction, by the way, between salesmanship and empathy. I, I, I hadn't thought of it like that, but you're right. There are, there are sales that don't involve the need for empathy, for sure. It's, it's like my buddy Carlton says, you know, when if you come into the emergency room with your hand dangling by the skin, you don't need the surgeon to say, oh, man, I've done that before. <laughs> I almost cut no. my hand. <laughs> like, just show me that you know how to fix this damn thing, right? <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> um, but when you, you know, uh, look back. So now, I would say you've grown out, outgrown the need for showmanship, but obviously there's been an evolution over your career. And I'm not saying it was just showmanship that, that got you where you were, but uh, you certainly were, uh, you know, you're a big celebrity in the business, right? Not to make it weird, but certainly I don't think anybody else in our industry had the level of recognizability that you did. Um, uh, why do you feel now like that's not, you don't have this desire or need to keep that up? Because I can turn ads into money. Mm. So when I did that, I made a conscious decision to do that. And that sounds cheesy, really. So I recognize that that sounds stupid, but, um, I can tell you exactly when that happened. So I had a little business, um, selling dog training stuff using Google AdWords and it worked very, very well. And it got up to about a million bucks a year or something in revenue. I didn't get to keep all that because I had a pretty high overhead from advertising. And then I helped Neil Strauss um, launch a dating product called The Game. Mm. Not The Game. I'm sorry. He wrote a book called The Game. The dating product uh, was called Annihilation Method. And it was very expensive. And I helped him do that. And he didn't know me from Adam. I just, for some reason, against his better judgment, he agreed to let my cousin and I help him do this project and split the money. And it worked out really well. And then I helped... Um, Andy Jenkins and Brad Fallon launched their StomperNet program, which was at the time, I'm sure it's been beaten now, but it was at the time the largest launch, I guess, for lack of a better word, in the history of our industry, which was huge. And when I did that, I began to be kind of confident in my ability to teach other people how to do stuff because I had done it in a market that was unrelated to marketing, which was the dog training business, and I did it through advertising. And then I had done it in a market which was unrelated to marketing, which was dating, which I had no clue about. I was in a marriage that was bad at the time. It ultimately ended, and I was never good with girls anyway. So here I am writing email copy for this dating guru, and I have no clue what I'm saying. You know, and he's reading the copy going, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so he's changing it you know, and resisting the urge to murder me. And then I did it for Andy, and I, and I was on a plane going from San Diego to Atlanta because the StomperNet dudes had – asked me to stay on post-launch for a retainer to sort of advise them on what to do. And I wrote out the plan on the damn airplane, and I wrote down that I wanted to be the rolling stones of internet marketing. And I made the decision to turn myself into a, a celebrity in that market. And um, I don't really, I mean, I don't regret it, I guess, but I think that it was, it would have been a better decision just to have been significantly better at marketing, you know, and spend the, spend all of that energy getting better at marketing and delivering better results for the people that turn to me for advice. But, um, yeah, that was all deliberate. And, uh, See, I don't really, you it, know, it was crazy. That's fascinating. I actually would have not thought that, uh, that, that was, I almost would uh, had this thing in my mind where 
it's almost like a viral video where you can't really manufacture that. No, it was a hundred percent on purpose. Now I, I will say that the the image that I portrayed was real, so the, it was not a persona. Um, mm-hmm. Back then, I really did live at the beach. I surfed every day. A lot of people asked me if I dyed my hair, which I always thought was funny, mm-hmm. uh, which I did not. You know, not there's anything wrong with that or whatever. But I was like, really? Why would I do that? But you know, whatever. Um, I drank constantly. You know, I pretty much tried to actually live like the Big Lebowski. And um, but when I made those videos, and that's really what created the celebrity was the the movie quality of the videos right. and the imagery and the marketing videos. That was all very very deliberate. Mm. Um, there was one where I was playing a lap. Uh, it's not a lap steel, but it's kind of this electric lap slide guitar that Carlton gave me, and I gave my video guy a copy of the Last Waltz by the band. And I said, I want this video to have that feel like the, the viewer is watching something iconic and important. Mm. And when we made the mysterious stranger video, which is uh, probably one of my more, I, I guess, famous videos for lack of a better word, that was a marketing video is where I'm driving around the bus, my Volkswagen bus talking about what if this mysterious stranger gave you a house and stuff. Um, I had him watch this Black Crows documentary where they used a certain burn effect Mm. on the film to make it look like vintage stuff. And I deliberately chose that Volkswagen van to have my audience have that subliminal nostalgia Mm. and um, anchoring back to, you know, times when everything was really good, like the good old days, because my audience was a little older than me at the time and deliberately chose the beach as a backdrop because of the symbolism there. So all of that was um, heavily thought through, you know, Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I got to tell you, it, you know, I, I really don't think I would have had, I don't think it got me better results than if I would have just sat down and written a damn very good sales letter. Right. You know what I mean? So yeah. I'm not sure if it was, if it did any good other than making a lot of people know who I was, which is not, doesn't really pay the bills. Yeah. You know? how, how many visits to a website can you get for the price of a VW bus, right? And, <laughs> and maintenance. Yeah. Uh, but, well, man, yeah, it, it's it's interesting because, you know, when I um, put it out to my community that we would have this interview, um, you know, one of the questions that I thought was a, an interesting one uh, from Peter Michaels, he said, you know, if, if you woke up tomorrow and the name Frank Kern suddenly meant nothing to anyone, you know, the brand was somehow wiped clean, but you still had to promote the services you sell today what would you do to begin selling your current offers, you know, without the brand history, like you're saying, uh, can you answer that? It's- oh shit. Yeah, I can answer it because I wake up every day thinking that mm. I, I operate as if that is the case already. Mm. So we spend an exorbitant, well, not an exorbitant amount. I like to spend more, but we advertise to complete strangers constantly. Yeah. So the thing that happened for me and the best thing that ever happened to me is, is when, we were all like, you know, me and, and all of my friends would promote each other's stuff through launches. I, I became weak at marketing in the sense that I did not – I no longer knew how to sell our type of stuff through advertising. And uh, that bothered me. So right around 2011 or 2012, I just quit doing it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to just pull the damn plug on this even though it's going to be very painful – because it's a really easy money, you know, to get a whole bunch of friends of yours to mail your stuff all the time and mm-hmm. share the money with them. But I said, screw it. I'm going to get good at 
turning advertising into profit because I think that really is the only long-term solution. And uh, I deliberately went out and started cultivating people who do not know me. So every single day, we're I'm getting buyers from people who've never seen me before because we're running media constantly, you know. So I'm doing the same old stuff that's always worked and mail order and online, you know, buy sell someone a very inexpensive book and then offer them something else and then offer them something else and hopefully you do a good enough job and deliver enough value they'll want to keep buying from you. So I don't I don't fear that whatsoever. It would be a temporary inconvenience, obviously, if I didn't have my mailing list or whatever, but mm-hmm. I have no no concern over that. Very cool. Yeah, that's great. Is that is is kind of the uh, the makeover, so to speak, part of that rebirth? Um, sort of, but that was not. That was kind of accidental to a degree. So a lot of things happened. You know, um, I, I started my career in direct response as a reaction to facing constant rejection um, as a door to door salesman. So I was like, if if I could just get rich quick on the internet without having to work for the man, everything will be cool. And because of that, I started selling business opportunity stuff. And I was, you know, one of those dudes that sold stupid crap. And, um, I got sued by the federal trade commission as a result of that. And it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Don't want it to happen again though. Um, but I'm grateful for the experience, you know? And so that occurred. And then I started selling the dog related stuff and I started selling the dog related stuff because I just wanted to survive. My business had been wiped out. I was very afraid. Um, you know, it was scary to get sued by the United States mm-hmm. government. Uh, I didn't even know they existed before they sued me. I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, not only do these guys exist, but they're very upset with me. So <laughs> that was very unpleasant. And then when I did that mass control era, you know, which would be, I guess from 2008 till 2011, that was largely, uh, you know, and it's embarrassing for me to tell you this, but it, it's was largely me wanting to prove to these un, unreal non-existent judges that I was worthy. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to show them that I really can be something, but there was actually no them. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was all in my mind, but that was really the reason I did all of that. And, um, and when I decided to turn myself into a marketing celebrity, I had that identity in my mind. And that's how I behaved. I made a lot of stupid decisions. I used a lot of drugs. I drank a lot. My family life was in ruins. So really, you know, what, what people refer to as the makeover, which is I cut my hair, you know, and stopped swearing on stage and stopped drinking, you know, bourbon while giving presentations and stuff was really the result of me just getting older. I'm 44 years old. I I met uh, my wife, Natalia, and immediately had a, a complete change of self-identity. I, I was no longer concerned with being a celebrity of any kind. I wanted to be a provider and a protector and an example for my children. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to really do good instead of just wanting to make a lot of money and party and, and have fun and entertain people. And uh, because of that, I just started to behave differently. So that wasn't particularly conscious in the sense that, well, I'm going to cut my hair this way and all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of all that, I started to develop, well, I guess because I started deliberately attracting people who advertised and real business people, I developed a profound respect and admiration for my customers. So when I present myself differently now, number one, I'm I really, you know, I'm older, right? I'm a father of four. I don't do as much stupid stuff anymore. So I want to set a good example for them, but also it is a deliberate sign of respect 
for the audience. So that's why I do it. So it wasn't necessarily conscious in terms of, okay, I'm going to remanufacture this public image, you know, and all this. I just was like, you know what? I don't care about this shit anymore. I'm an ad man. I'm proud to be one. And I'm going to do the best I can. And I'm cutting my hair off because sometimes if you're 44 years old and you got four kids and got long hair, you start looking like Vince Neal from Motley Crue and there's nothing wrong with him. But, you know, I don't necessarily want to look like that. That's not the poster. Yeah, you had as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. That's great, man. And so uh, four kids, um, uh, if they, you know, this is a dumb question. You ask this to an actor or somebody. But uh, how is important is it for them, for you, to understand uh, how business and entrepreneurialism works in regards to having choices in life? Is, is that something you're conscious of as a parent? It is uh, it's something I obsess over. Mm-hmm. So for me, it is as important to me as it would be for an evangelical born-again Christian to, to know that their children knew the Word of God. Wow. Yep. Love it. And so what kind of things... It, it, what is it too young? Like, do, do you give them things like you don't say, all right, this is marketing and this is how this works. Or, or you kind of put them through almost like, uh, you know, uh, uh, unannounced challenges so that they'll that it, it'll awaken that spirit inside of them. No, um, although that's a pretty good idea. I, I've got a bit of a challenge in that my two of my children that live with me full time are very young. They're two and my son turns five tomorrow. So Great. they're not quite well, my son might be ready to start talking about this kind of stuff. And then my daughters I see every couple of weeks and I only have them part time. Mm-hmm. So I don't get to have the level of influence on them that I would like. But I do spend a considerable amount of time just talking to them about their choices because the environment they live in is very different than the environment they live in when they're with me, which is the minority of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're in this giant house. I mean, not to sound like an asshole, but right. we've got two Rolls Royces here. I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they come over here and it's like, oh, <laughs> and all of this kind of stuff. And I, I always am saying, listen, this we build this and you can do this. And here's exactly how you do it. And so I'll show them like the day's sales and I'll say, here's how we did this, you know, and I want you to understand. And then they'll tell me things they learned in school. And I'll say, well, that's one perspective, but you got to understand that, you know, you can also do this, this and this. And like my daughters, one of them was really interested into the, I can't remember one of the Kardashian girls, the younger one who has the lipstick. Mm-hmm. So I started explaining to her, let me show you, you know, how she's getting rich doing this. Right. And so. I do it, but I don't make a game out of it necessarily. Right. I try to talk to them like they're grown and we're just having conversations because that's how my grandfather talked to me. Mm-hmm. But it was a little harsher, and I'm glad it was. I needed it. They don't, thankfully. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so I do the best I can with it. And um, we'll see if it pays off, you know. I mean, truthfully, I don't care what they do as long as they're happy. Right. You know, they could be gas station attendants, yeah. whatever. Yeah. School teachers, it doesn't matter to me. Yeah, I feel the same way. But somebody once told me, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. Right? And I thought, that's the truest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Man, that's so heavy, Kevin. I know, bro. Sorry. Think about Just... that, man. I'm freaked out. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. I'll be waking up at four in the morning. Thanks, Rob. I already wake up at four. Now I got four of them. Four. I got teenage girls. Well, they're happy now, so you're doing great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're happy now. That's good. All right. Let's get to the... Uh, 
the big essential question of this podcast, uh, and I'm excited to hear your answer. So Frank Kern, what is the one thing you've done in your marketing that produced the most surprising results? Dude, I love this question, and I gave it a considerable amount of thought. And the one big thing was making the deliberate choice to speak to my audience and my prospects in a very upfront and blunt manner and being very, very upfront with them about all of the, I guess you could say, uh, the, the negatives involved with what they were considering purchasing. Mm. And I got the idea from watching that damn Dudley Moore movie. I think it was called Crazy People, oh, yeah. where he was the ad man who just said all he did was now just be, tell the blatant, <laughs> ugly truth about everything. Right. So when I started you know, deliberately saying, listen, don't buy this if you're expecting to make money overnight. It's actually extremely difficult. And saying things like trying to be successful in business is like trying to be a championship boxer. You are definitely going to get punched in the face. If you can't stand getting punched in the face, don't get in the ring and things like that. It, it worked like really, really well, which was awesome. You know? So, um, that really blew my freaking mind. And, mm. um, it's, uh, it's a great way to sell, you know? Yeah. I mean, who knows I could maybe convert more if I did your traditional stuff, but I don't want that kind of customer, you know? Right. So, I, uh, I, lo I love that that's your answer because it's one of the questions I kind of didn't get to. But that is something I remember distinctly the first time I saw. And, and what I love, uh, you do that. And I, what I love is you don't bury that. That is not a, that is not the third PS. It is the often the opening line of, uh, you know, or, or it's on a landing page, right? Um, did that – was that a progressive thing where it's like – did it begin almost as like a disclaimer, like you said, you mentioned you had, you know, legal dealings. Did it come from that? And then you're like, oh, this is actually resonating. People appreciate this. And then it became more prominent or? Uh, no, it, it became prominent when I really can't remember. Actually, I wish I had a smart answer for that. I started doing it probably around 2011 or 2012 when I was looking at the customer base I was attracting and I was complaining about them, not all of them, but, you know, we only we only at least me, I shouldn't generalize about everybody, but I'll let like three bad customers overshadow 100 awesome ones. Sure. Right. So I was trying to teach higher level stuff and I'm trying to teach it to past customers and I'm getting like, I don't want to do this. You know, I where's the magic bullet, the, you know, whatever, 2000 <laughs> system dot biz that's going to get me rich. So. I remember something Dan Kennedy said, which was, hey, don't complain about your customers. You're the one that went out and got them. Go out and get other ones. Mm -hmm. So I started doing that because I I'm I play this game very long, you know, so I want someone who's going to do business with me forever. And I know that if they'll do what I tell them, they'll probably get the results and therefore they'll probably do business with me forever. So I kind of use that as a filter. I don't care so much about the first sale. You know what I mean? I'm willing to take a lower conversion rate on the front end in order to get someone whose lifetime value is going to be much higher. Right. Absolutely. And yeah, how long does it take if somebody's sitting there now going, I, I love that idea, but I'm trapped in having to keep up with the, the immediate sale, right? Is what's a fair amount of time to decide lifetime customer value 
Well, if someone's trapped in that, um, probably that's going to be, and this is a generalization, you know, but I was trapped in it, right? So mm-hmm. what, what happened to me was I decided to go very high end and to be very blunt and straightforward and only work with the, the absolute perfect people. But I, because I was so high end, the immediate sale, one immediate sale of that counted as like 10 immediate sales from something else. So it, it sort of evened out. You know what I mean? So when I started making that decision, I was selling things for ten dollars and $15,000. And um, it was a very heavy takeaway type sale. And it, it worked really, really well. And I was no longer dependent on having to push so hard. Mm-hmm. So. I would say I would say this to really any market that's challenged would be to raise prices and profits significantly and go after the highest caliber customer you can because they'll pay it and you can spend the extra time servicing them and you'll have plenty of profits, you know. Right. And, the, and an affluent buyer, typically speaking, and you know, and I know I'm generalizing a lot in the conversation, so take it for what it's worth. But an affluent buyer is typically going to be much more responsive and appreciative to a straightforward, you know, type of thing. Like I had a, I had to do a speech the other day, which I never do really. And I was speaking on stage to a real estate group. I don't know why the hell I agreed to do this as a friend of mine. And one of our inner circle members asked me to do it. So I did. And, um, I don't know a damn thing about how their business works. And I got up there and stood right in front of them and said, you know, I, I got good news and bad news for you. The bad news is I have no clue how your business works whatsoever. And the good news is I'm not going to bullshit you about it. And I bet if you and I do some work together right now while I'm here, we can figure out a way to make it more efficient through some reverse engineering processes. And we did. And uh, they wanted to buy stuff. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. I think we just sort of get we copy stuff we see and we think it's the only way, but it's not, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, does imposter syndrome rear its ugly head when you jump up, you know, higher levels and start charging more? Um, it didn't for me, but I didn't start charging more until I'd been doing this for a long time. Right. So no. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a hundred percent true what you say that, I always tell people with, I work with a lot of freelance copywriters and I say, look, uh, when you earn your way to charging what you're really worth and then you, uh, stop, uh, uh, being too scared to name your price, this amazing world's going to open up to you where everything gets easier because, uh, people, when they're paying you good money, they trust you. Right. It's a big part of what they're paying for is they want to trust you and believe that, you know, what the hell you're doing <laughs> and that your stuff's going to work. So you don't get all this pressure and all this pushback. Uh, that's probably that one of the biggest, the greatest secrets of this industry. Right. Is is that uh, the more you charge, the easier things get. But the big caveat there is you've got to You've got to earn it. Yeah, you got to be good at what you do. Um but, you know, if you're not, you shouldn't be in business anyway. So yeah, shouldn't like, be charging anything. You know, right. Yeah, right, I mean, right. everyone listening to this is probably pretty good at what they do. And, you know, typically you're going to be a lot better than the client. So regardless, you right. know what I mean? As long as you can do it. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have when we start doing client work, which I really don't do anymore, I just publish a newsletter now, um, is we expect the client to behave as if our expertise is – 
their first language like it is our first language. Mm-hmm. And it's really their 10th language, you know, so we'll give them, we'll overwhelm them <laughs> with stuff thinking, of course, they're going to understand this and make so much perfect sense. And meanwhile, they're like, okay, what? Okay. Oh, an autoresponder is, well, we wouldn't usually work with a client like that, but I think you get what I mean, right, you know? Right. And, um, that took me a long time to figure out, which was there's nothing. Their clients aren't dumb. I don't mean it like that at all. It's just this is not their first language. Their first language is the stuff they do, and we got to really break things down for them in a framework and be patient. And it's uh, it's fun, but again, I'm I, I don't really do much one on one or anything like that now. Mm-hmm. Great, awesome. The last question, Frank. Is it uh, how big's your team now? It, it still feels like it's it's small. Yeah, it is pretty small. Um, I do have a real office, though, and it's right next door to the sheriff's department or the police station. I can't remember if sheriffs or police, but they're I'm two doors down from them in Carmel Valley. And so it's me. Uh, it's my it's like one of those glass, you know, all glass professional buildings and stuff. And there's a bunch of IP lawyers and financial people. And then there's us, you know, and then there's the cops. So it's uh this is significantly different than what it used to be. And I've got a CEO who um, runs everything. And I've got two salespeople. And they're all inbound sales. We don't do any of the cold calling or outbound or anything like that. And I have two customer service folks. And these are all literally in-house. Oh, so cool. I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with outsourcing. But I just like to go down there and see what the hell's going on. You know, yeah. I would prefer to really stay on top of it. I don't mind spending the extra money. I've got a video person who's freelance, who's worked with me for 10 years. And um, then I outsource uh, my advertising management. You know, Tom Breeze does my YouTubes and my YouTubes, my YouTube media and uh, Dominate Web Media does my Facebook. So I think that's about it. Oh, and and, uh, Vision Tech Team does my tech stuff. Very cool. So so you're not cranking Southern Harmony, the musical companion in and shoeless like you used to in the office. Uh, well, I work from home, so I never go to – I go once every other week because I do live video conferences for our members. And uh, that's the only reason I'll ever go down there. And it's not because I, I don't work and I don't want to not be around the team, but I just won't get anything done. Right. Um, I know that you know I – I fuel the business by doing two things, which is marketing the membership and then serving the members. So I stay here in my home office, which is like a big library in this house that we have. And um, I create content for our members and I come up with promotions to get new members. And that's it, you know? Yeah. And you, you don't do the, you still doing the state of unions? I haven't done one since 2012. I keep saying I'm going to do another one, but <laughs> I just haven't. Yeah. I really should. I have a lot to say. I'm yeah. just I'm very busy, you know. Right. Ever since we started this, uh, the membership that I've got, I've just have, I've really fallen in love with it, and um, I've become obsessed with just giving these guys all the stuff that I can. So they take up um, they take up a lot of bandwidth in a good way. Like if I I want them to take the bandwidth, you know, I'm happy to give it to them. Right. And so if somebody's listening and they want to try to discover this membership, is, is there a place they go? Or? There, you know, embarrassingly, no, there's not. So the only way to get it is to find an ad for my consulting book, buy the consulting book, and then you'll eventually be in a funnel for the membership, which, it's, of course, is, is dumb. But No, it's actually – I think it's smart. It's, it, it is, that's kind of very Dan Kennedy too, right? It's like you have to be indoctrinated into who I am and how I work before you can access the, the kingdom, so to speak. Well, yeah, and, and it's just numbers. Um, 
I don't really talk much about this publicly, but I'm a very analytical and intense numbers person. So from the ad perspective, my front end book funnel earns about a 19% ROI on the front end in 30 days before the funnel starts selling membership. So every member acquired is acquired at zero cost. Actually, I'm at a profit before I acquire them. So that's sort of why I built that funnel that way. And, um, but I still probably should have something for clever answers like this, like go to franksmembership.com. <laughs> I haven't done it, you know, so it, it I just, don't know. Find something. Maybe go to my website and opt in or either write us, you know, support at Frank Kern Help Desk and, or something. It should be, you should just have a physical address only, right? It's P.O. Box, you know, 101, uh, yeah. Pueblo, Give them like, yeah, Pueblo, next door Colorado. to the police station yeah. across from the movie theater in Carmel Valley. <laughs> yeah, I often, I often go for tacos at 4 p.m. on Wednesdays, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's great. Well, it only makes it that much cooler that you made time to talk with us today. So, Frank, I really do appreciate it. It's been fun and enlightening as I knew it would be. Well, and anyone listening to this, I, I mean, it never ceases to amaze me that someone actually wants to hear what I have to say. So thank you for taking the time <laughs> to listen to it. That's crazy to me. Yeah, it'll be well received, I'm sure. I appreciate it, bro. Let's do it again. Okay, anytime. Thanks. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Truth About Marketing podcast. If you like this show and you think other people would like this show, the best way to spread the word is by reviewing and rating the show in iTunes. Just log in, click review, leave a big old fat five-star review, and let everybody know that you dig the show so that they can dig it too. To get all the links and resources we mentioned on today's episode, please go to copychief.com forward slash T-A-M, as in truth about marketing. And if you'd like to... Uh, learn more about how you can improve your sales copy with uh, templates, formulas, coaching, feedback, or hiring a pro. Do all that on the inside of the members area of copychief.com, and I will look for you there. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.